No fish have been harmed in the making of this podcast. Welcome aboard the Talking Bass in PDX podcast. Thank you for joining me on Talking Bass in PDX. This is the Bass and Warm Water Forum where we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark and I'll be your host. On this episode of Talking Bass and PDX, I do have a special guest, but before we talk to him, let me talk to you a little bit about Talking Bass and PDX, the podcast. The podcast is all about fishing in the Northwest, and if you enjoy listening, tell your friends about us. Let them know that we can be heard on Spotify, Anchor FM, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and if they have a regular computer, just tell them to find us on Google. Now, on this particular podcast, typically I've been talking about bass, but on this one we're going to venture out a little bit and get into walleye fishing. As many of you know, back in September, I was uh, at a uh, an event, and I met many, many anglers. There were s- several walleye anglers at this event, and of course I was right there watching and listening to what they had to say and learning about walleye fishing. Now today I have Ted Beach on the show. Ted is a tournament walleye angler. Now there are several walleye tournaments that do happen here in the Northwest. However, um, many of them uh, are uh, more a little more to the east. Now Ted is also a Max Lure Pro Staff member, and we'll be talking about that just a bit on the show. So with that, let's get to the interview and talk with Ted. Well, Ted, welcome to the podcast this afternoon. How are you? Good, Don. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was just great fishing with you at Fish Camp this year and learning a little bit about walleye. And as we talked, you were talking about a uh, a seminar that you do called Walleye 101, and what I wanted to do after I heard about it was is uh, get you on the podcast, give it to some of my uh, my listeners, and let them learn a little bit more about the walleye on the Columbia and then the Northwest. So I'm going to turn it over to you. I may have a question or two along the way, but uh floor's yours. Okay. Appreciate it, Don. All right. Well, let's get started, folks. Uh, walleye 101. So what I'd like to do is tell you a little bit about what a walleye is. A lot of people have misnomers about a walleye. A walleye is a Piscavirus family, which is entails meat-eating. They're a meat-eater. Um, there is a misnomer that walleye are a warm-water fish species, but that is not true. Walleye are a cool-water fish species. And walleyes are located from the tip of North America all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. And some places they're a natural um, fish. In other words, they were not planted there. In some areas, such as the Columbia River, they got into the system from being planted in uh, Lake Roosevelt area. So a lot of questions I get are, Where's the where, what temperature is the water ideal for walleye? And that temperature usually runs between 60 and 70 degrees is the ideal temperature. When winter time comes, the water temperature cools down, and those walleye tend to go down deeper into the warmer water. The water changes temperature; it flips 
So cool water's on top and the warmer water's underneath. In the summertime, it just flips back over. Springtime is generally when the walleye start to spawn. And let's cover that a little bit, the reproduction part. The males mature in three to four years. The females mature in four to five years. Ideal spawning temperature is 42 to 52 degrees. Now keep in mind, walleye do not make a nest like your salmonoids, like bass, like crappie. What they do is a female has uh, eggs that are, have a sticky substance on them, and they will find gravel bars, weed beds, uh, stump fields. And some of it is in shallow, some shallow as a foot to two foot, and they will deposit their eggs in this structure or the weeds or the gravel and those eggs will stick to whatever they're laying their eggs on or deposit their eggs. When they do that, then a male comes in behind them and he will fertilize those eggs. Now, keep in mind a large female can lay up to 500,000 eggs. But out of those 500,000 eggs, the survival rate's very, very small. You're talking uh, 2 to 3% the most on survival rate on all those eggs. It takes, uh, depending on the water temperature, 4 to 10 days for those eggs to turn into larvae. At that time, the uh, larvae will start feeding on zooplankton and plankton, and as they get bigger, they start feeding on bigger insects and whatnot in the water column. Now, you said that the survival rate is not very good. Can you explain why they don't survive very well? It all depends. The survival rate depends on water conditions, water temperatures, fluctuation of water. Um, if you take a look, let's use Lake Roosevelt, for example. The drawdown on that reservoir could happen at a time when those eggs have been laid. All of a sudden, they're left high and dry. There's no, no place, you know, no water for them. That happens. They also get eaten by other fish. Um, it's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I was uh, suspecting was that uh, not only do the parents eat some of the uh, the small fish, uh, but I was assuming other fish uh, uh, prey on them too, but I did not. Uh, account for water drawdown, which is uh, probably a, a good percentage, uh, at least happening up here in the Northwest, of fish that, uh, that don't survive. Yeah, and that's correct. And it doesn't just affect the walleye, but if you have um, crappie or bass that have made these nests and the water draws down, um, it leaves them high and dry. I can remember fishing up at Lake Roosevelt, for example, and the water got drawn down, and we found several areas that had uh, bass nests that were already made, but they were high and dry up there. So that is a problem in the Northwest because it, and it has to do with irrigation. I'm sure a lot of it does. Yeah, I'm sure that irrigation uh, and even power in some cases may be, may be causing some of that drawdown. But exactly. For, but for those fish that do survive, um, when are they catchable size? How long do they have to grow? Well, usually a male will reach maturity in two to four years. A female will reach maturity three to six years. 
So a two-year-old fish would be plenty big enough to be caught, and those are really what we call our eaters, the best eating fish or the smaller fish, and that's why we encourage in, in the northwest area, the Columbia River area, to release the bigger females so they can continue to produce baby walleye because in this area, unfortunately, the, there is no planning of the walleye fish. It's all natural. And uh, since the 2016, I believe it was, when the size limit and limit was taken off of the walleye, the catfish, and smallmouth bass, um, we have seen a big significant difference in the amount of large walleye that are being caught on the river uh, versus what it used to be. But anyway, that's for another story or another another podcast we can get into. Yeah, there, um, it, and we are... Ahead. And we are planning that uh, that podcast uh, along the way. So, folks, if you're interested in hearing, uh, for the lack of a better term, let's call it the politics of uh, walleye, uh, shoot me an email at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com and let me know if that's something that interests my listeners because uh, I'll move it up in my schedule. Otherwise, we're going to schedule that for early next year. Ted, let me get you back, uh, back to... Walleye 101, so that we uh, we hear the story of walleye. I left off with the female um, having her eggs laid, and then the male coming in and fertilizing them. And like I said, it takes uh, you know 10 days or so for those eggs to hatch. Once that female drops those eggs, she's exhausted. She's going to go out and she's going to lay in deep water, and she might not even eat for a few days. The males. They'll feed as soon as they're done. They're hungry. And that's why they call it a post-spawn bite. I'm sure you've heard that term. There's a pre-spawn bite, and what that is, it's those big females, and those males are stationed out in the mouth of creeks or near their their, uh, habit spawning areas, and they start putting on the feed bag because that female knows when she starts laying them eggs, she's not going to eat for quite a few days. So that's what's called a pre-spawn bite. And then the post-spawn bite, like I was saying, is when that female has had her later eggs and she goes out and she lays and sulks in deep water, the males, just they get ferocious. They start eating like crazy. Now, a big female, she might not eat normally, except maybe other, every other day, every two days. They don't eat constantly. Something to keep in mind if you're out there fishing for walleye and you start catching a bunch of males and it's right around the, the uh, post-spawn bite, remember those females are going to be laying out there in deeper water and they're going to be harder to catch. Pre-spawn bite, they're a little, the big females are a little easier to catch. Now, they feed on crayfish, worms, minnows, leeches, insects, other minnows. In the Columbia River system, you've got sticklebacks, you've got baby carp, you've got perch, all kinds. And yes, they do eat a few salmon smolt and steelhead smolt. There's no question about it. That's pretty much it on walleye themselves. You cannot predict a walleye's habits like you can an elk or deer or turkey. You know, if you think about that, you can you can pattern those animals. A walleye, it's just almost impossible to pattern that animal or that fish. So, 
it's important to do your homework when you're getting ready to go fishing. Now, I have fished since 2004. I have fished all the way back to um, Green Bay, uh, Detroit, Lake Erie, and Detroit, all the way to the Midwest, and all the way back out here fishing the PWT and the FLW as a co-angler. I learned a lot doing that, and one of the things we would do when we'd first go to a new area would be go down to the boat ramp and we would watch boats coming in and talk to fishermen. Most of the time fishermen will talk to you and they'll tell you what the fish are biting on, how deep they are, what color to use. And the bait shops, that's another good resource. So remember, we're doing our homework before we hit the water. Use the internet, look up fish reports. Again, talk to fishermen on the boat ramps. Find what we call community holes. A community hole is where the guides fish or the locals all fish. And if you look, there will be, you know, several boats there. That's telling you the walleye are biting there. Be aware of your surroundings because that's going to help you find the fish. Now, what I would recommend, if you were coming down to the Columbia River area and had never fished it before, there's a lot of good guides in our area. And I would encourage you to save your money, hire a guide for a day, and he's going to take you out and you're going to catch walleye, and you're going to know what color to use, what area you're at, and how deep you're going to fish for those walleye and what to use as far as weights, etc. That way you're not wasting gas on your boat running around trying to find a walleye. You know what tackle you need to have, and it'll save you money in the long run. Again, when you're on the water, be very observant. Yeah, one of the questions I had for you was, now because you fish a lot on the Columbia River, well, most of us do for walleye, I check the water flow when I'm here in the Portland area going to go bass fishing on the Willamette River. I watch that very close. Do you watch for the water flow uh, coming down river on, on the Columbia? The only thing I do, I guess the answer is yes and no. The only thing I do when I fish the river um, below McNary Dam is I'm going across the bridge there at Umatilla. I look to see if the gates are open or if they're closed or how bad the buoy is leaning. Because it really doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm going to go fishing anyway. So then if the current's really strong, you're going to find those current seams. You're going to try to find areas, pockets that are not in the current directly, and that's where those walleye are going to hang out. Oh, so that's uh, that's a bit of a secret there is watching the uh, for the what I call quiet water or water that the the flow is uh, being obstructed by something. Um, now the other thing that I tell folks if you're driving from the Portland area, um, watch watch for wind speed out there. There's a lot of different um, websites that will tell you what the what the wind's doing. Um, if you're driving all that distance, there's nothing worse than going up there and, and trying to fish in a heavy wind. So that that's my only be cautious. And, and that's a good safety tip, too, because that's the only thing on this river that will get you is the wind. Um, the current it ain't going to bother you if you're in a boat, but the wind can make that current and waves really treacherous. And uh, I've been on water where we have... Uh, flip boats over, um, busted out front windshields, um, you name it. it. It's just not fun to be on that kind of water. 
Now, I have fished down in the Portland area, and there's a situation down there, and Don, I'm sure you're familiar with this if you've done any fishing down there out of uh, Washougal and Camas and all that area, is you have the tide to contend with. So not only do you have a current, but you also have a tide. And we would pull worm harnesses downriver at three and a half miles an hour and catch walleye. But on the Columbia up here, Lake Roosevelt, or Banks Lake, or some of these, you might not be pulling that worm harness any faster than 0.8 to 1.0 miles an hour. So the big difference, you got to be aware, again, of your, your areas and your surroundings. And that's what helps by going with a local guide for the first time so you can get all that dialed in and not waste money running around trying to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And, and so from... Um the mouth of the Columbia River, probably up to um, the dam there at um, Bonneville, that is all uh, tidal affected. And yep. so you're, you're absolutely right. We do watch the tide when we are like in the Multnomah Channel fishing or when we are out on the Columbia above the 205 bridge. I like to, I like to fish an outgoing tide. Or I like to find the slack tide, depending on what time of the, the day it is, uh, because it will uh, it will change the way you're fishing, and I believe it also does affect the fish, because I think that they're trying to get comfort, so they're going to move into water that you may not even try to fish. Exactly, exactly. We'll talk about equipment for a few minutes. Uh, for equipment... For blade baiting, I'm sure most of you are familiar with blade baiting or jigging. Um, I use a six foot six inch or seven foot rod with a spinning reel attached. I found that gives me the best control and then the best feel of my blade bait or my jig. I uh, spin a reel spooled with eight to ten pound braided line, and I use a two to four foot fluorocarbon leader on that particular setup. So bottom bouncing, and let's talk about bottom bouncing for a minute. That's a pretty standard way to catch walleye. Um, bottom bouncer weights come in various different shapes and sizes. I tend to use what's called a slider uh, bottom bouncer. It's just a single, it's not an L shape, it's just one long piece. And I slide it on my line with a, with a slider clevis. The nail shape bottom bouncer and they come in various weights. The bottom bouncers come in various weights, anywhere from, you know, a quarter ounce all the way up. I've got some as much as four and five ounces. So theory is for every 10 feet of water you're in, you want to use one ounce of weight. So 20, 20 feet, you'd use a two-ounce bottom bouncer, theory. But you got to also... Think about the current if you're fishing in the river system. So what I go back to, regardless of if I'm in the, the river, reservoirs, lakes, or wherever, have your fishing line coming off the tip of your rod going into the water at a 45-degree angle. If you do that, chances are you're fishing that bottom bouncer right where it should be because you want it to tick in the bottom. You don't want to drag it. Sometimes when I take new people out in my boat, I think I mentioned this to you before, Don. I will paint the bottom bouncer a fluorescent color and put it on their line. 
and let them fish with it for a half hour. If they have not lost the setup, then I pull that bottom bouncer up and I look at it. If the bottom of the paint is all rubbed off, that tells me they're letting out too much line and they're going to be dragging that bouncer and hanging it up and breaking off or losing it. So remember, every <clears throat> 10 feet of water, one ounce bottom bouncer is, in theory, what they say, the infamous they say to use. But if you keep that line at a 45 degree angle, your chances are you're going to be right where you want to be, right where the fish are. I use a 7 foot 10 inch, 8 foot 6 inch, or a 10 foot 5 inch rod with a level wine reel that has a flipping switch on it. And I usually spool it with 10 to 15 pound braided line. Did you have a question there, Don? I do. Now, a lot of times I'll take folks out, and I follow exactly what you're saying as far as my line's out of 45. I can typically feel the bottom of the bottom bouncer ticking, as you want to call it. Uh, and I'm watching the, the depth so that if it gets a little shallow, I'm pulling it up or dropping it down. But when somebody tells me I can't feel the bottom, what should I tell them? Well, that's a good question. And what I usually do, instead of telling them, I take a hold of their rod and check it first, and then I give it back to them. And if they say they can't feel the bottom, then I, you know, I don't know. I, I let out some more line until they can feel the bottom, and then I reel it up so it's just ticking and see if they can feel that. But generally, most people... After fishing for a little while, they'll get the hang of it, and they start feeling the bottom, And especially once they catch a fish. They're all excited, and then they'll say, oh, yeah, I see what you mean now. I will demonstrate a lot of times on dry ground before I put the boat in the water and show them what the bottom walker should look like when it's going down in the river or down in the lakes when you're trolling with it, just ticking the bottom. And that kind of gives them a visual of it also, and that, sometimes that'll help. That's, that's a great suggestion because the, um, you know, you'll be going down river and I don't know about you, but I'm trying to cover I'm trying to cover some territory, and so I'm kind of relying on anybody else in the boat to be watching and vigilant of their line, so that we're not getting hung up because if we get hung up, we got to turn around, we got to go back, we got to try to retrieve the line, if that's possible, and um, so that that just slows down the uh, the amount of area that we can cover that day. Exactly. And unfortunately, you know, when you fished with me, I don't know if we hung up or anything, but I don't turn around. I just break it off and go and retie because I guess a habit from tournament fishing, um, it's all about time, you know. But uh, anyway, if you, if you will visually, before you get in the water on the boat ramp or on, on the parking lot, show someone you knew what that bottom bouncer is supposed to look like, it really tends to help them once they get in the water. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. I'm going to try that the next time is just let some, you know, have them let some line out and look at the bottom bouncer and say, okay, this is a, this is how it should look down on the bottom. Right, now, right. The next thing is, under, is on presentation, uh, especially for pulling a bottom bouncer. I've heard, well, <laughs> I have hundreds of dollars of different, uh, lures and combinations, is there a general go-to that somebody newer could, could
could pull out of their box and say, I'm pretty sure I'm going to catch fish on this particular setup? Um, a double worm harness. And if most of the listeners are familiar with MaxLur, you can go on MaxLur website, which is MaxLur.com, and you can buy pre-tied double hook worm harnesses, and any of their double hook worm harnesses are going to catch you fish. Um, I am on pro staff with Mark's, I mean Maxler, but I'm not telling you this because I'm on pro staff. I'm telling you this because it will catch fish. It works. I've used them. I've used just about every lure for walleye that Maxler has, and that's the easiest way to do it because then. If you got, and color-wise, chartreuse is always a good color. Um, reds are good color. Oranges are good color. So any three of those colors, your chances are you're going to catch some walleye. Now, I don't want to discourage people, but the Columbia River down here, until you learn it, it can be tough and you'll get frustrated. I did myself. I swore I'd never fish another tournament down here. But I'm back. I live here now, so I live right on the river, basically. I uh, have learned this river. I've learned where the current seams are. I've learned where to fish for these, these walleye here. But, again, going with a guide, which I did not do, and I should have, it would have saved me a bunch of money. But uh, chartreuse, orange, red, you're going to catch green. Um, again, go to maxler.com and look at all their walleye two-hook harnesses, and any of those will catch you fish. Now, I think it was last year, maybe a year before, I was introduced to the slow death hook. I've tried it a few times, mixed results. What's your opinion on the uh, slow death hook? Well, <clears throat> the slow death hook came out uh, three or four years, four years ago, five years ago. Mustad brought them out. They were designed by a couple gentlemen that fish professionally, and they won tournaments with them. But the problem with the original Mustad slow death hook was it was too thin of a wire hook. And big walleye, these big walleye, they didn't have that problem where they were fishing. But you catch a 10-pound, 12-pound walleye on a Mustad slow death hook, it tends to bend the hook fairly easy, um, and you'll lose your fish. That, that particular hook cost me and my partner... Um, $10,000, over $10,000 on a walleye championship tournament a couple years ago. Then they came out with the super slow death hook. Same gentleman designed this one. The super slow death hook is made of heavier wire, and it was designed to use plastic grubs, plastic uh, worm harnesses or worms on, and I use those a lot. I like the slow death hook as far as its presentation. It gives your bait somewhat of a twist in the water or, or turn in the water and it activates the fish to bite it I believe because of the motion so I'm a firm believer and if you look in the Max Lure catalog or go online the slow death hooks and the, and the super slow death hooks those were my designs that I gave to Max Lure and had them put out there so I'm a firm believer in them now, that's interesting. I'm going to have to look those up and um, and possibly buy some different uh, hooks because I like the idea. It's just not, uh, it doesn't seem to be as reliable to me as a double hook 
setup. I always seem to do a little bit better with those. Now, what about pulling a crankbait? What's your opinion on pulling crankbait? Well, that was my next subject to get into. <laughs> um, crankbaits, I use a line counter reel, and I usually spool it with 10 to 15 pound braid or mono. And you can also use lead core, 18 pound lead core with about a 15 to 30 foot fluorocarbon leader. And you really you want to pull that crankbait upstream. You want to pull that anywhere from 0.8 to 2.5 miles an hour, depending on the current or where you're at. Um, in fact, I was just talking to my wife. We're going to fish a bragging, what's called a bragging tournament next Saturday up on uh, the Snake on Lions Ferry. And we'll be pulling crankbaits up there probably part of the, the tournament. But a lot of guys don't feel because the water temperature's drop so much that the crankbaits aren't that successful but the i've had really good luck in this area on the snake and on the columbia this time of year with crankbaits and i think it's more of a matching the hatch because now the the, the shad and and uh, other bait fish have gotten big to where they're emulating a six inch four inch crankbait so i use a lot of bandits um a lot of Berkeley number 11s, and because I'm matching the hatch, I, I've got, and at nighttime especially, I use the crankbaits at nighttime um, because of the rattle in them, and it gives the walleye something to, to zero in on with their lateral um, line that they use to sense motion in the water and here in the water. So crankbaits are a good way to locate fish they're a good way to fish an area fairly fast and cover water like you mentioned earlier don you like to cover water and the crankbait's a good way to go but again you want to pull them upstream if you're in the columbia river where you got a current you pull them downstream chances are you're going to hang up and lose them and it's not a natural presentation to the fish because if you think about it when you're pulling upstream a bait fish or a any kind of thing that the walleye bait the walleye is going to eat is going to be coming downstream in that current. Well, your crankbait's going over the top of that fish, and the fish cannot see straight above them, but they can see off the sides and what's in front of them. So once that crankbait gets in front of that fish, as it goes over the top of him and it's in front of him all of a sudden, a lot of times that's a reaction bite for that fish to grab it. And that's why I like crankbaits myself. And you, like I say, you want to pull them anywhere from 0 0.8 to 2.5. Just depend. The fish are going to dictate to you how they want that presentation. Does that exactly. make sense? Yeah, exactly. And I, I also like to pull crankbait. In fact, I've done it on the or on the uh, Multnomah Channel, and I love the bite because it feels like the fish uh, attack. I mean, they really hit that as hard as anything I've ever seen uh, hit a bait. So it's it's just a fun to watch that uh, how that uh, rod reacts when they attack it, and then of course when you're fighting them, they're they're really really in fight mode at that point. Sure, it, and it, like you say, that is a fun thing. Like when we fish at night for walleye, I love. I just put my rod in a rod holder. And I just sit there and watch my rod. And when a fish gets on it, you know, there's no mistake, it's a fish. 
with that rod going back and pulling back and then bouncing and everything, I mean, it's exciting, especially when you hook those 10, 12, 13-pound fish. Yeah, that that uh, sounds really fun, especially uh, fishing at night. That's got to be a whole new experience because you've got uh, you got the element of darkness there that's going on. So you've got a little more work to do. I'm sure getting the boat going in the right direction and that type thing. But the uh, the walleye tend to feed more at night, don't they? Um, depending on the cloud cover and what's going on, but generally speaking, the theory is, yes, they do tend to feed at night because of their sensitivity to their eyes. Um, but I have found, you know, you can get a good walleye bite at 12 o'clock noon. It was a high sun, hot summertime. I mean, when we fish a Boardman tournament, it's in July and it, trust me, it's not cool then and it's bright and we... It's not uncommon for that tournament in, in uh, July at Boardman to be one with 70, 73 pounds. Not uncommon at all. Wow, that is uh, that is and incredible. That, that's you know six fish two days. That's twelve fish for seventy, seventy-three pounds. Now, I have caught you know many walleye, you know, especially ones that have been turned into table fare, the smaller smaller ones. Sure. My my thing has always been, how do you, uh, especially if you catch a bigger one, you see it come into the boat, how do you take care to make sure that boat, that that fish is not going to get injured and that you can uh, release it uh, easily? Um, the best thing to do is, is not handle it a whole bunch. If you have a good working live well, have that live well on, put that fish in the live well for 10, 15 minutes, let it relax a little bit because it's just... After you've fought that fish, it's expended a lot of energy. And I like to let them put them in the live well, let them sit there for 10 or 15 minutes, and just relax. If I'm going to take any pictures, then that's after I let them sit there in the live well and relax. That's when I'll take them out, take my pictures, and get them back in the water as soon as possible. And we call that CPR, catch, photo, and release. Um, I have two walleye on my wall that are fiberglass reproductions, one my wife caught and one I caught, and both of those were released unharmed. But what you do is you just take a length measurement, a circumference measurement, and pictures, and any good taxidermist can turn that into a beautiful replica of a walleye. So it's important to, like I say, let those fish relax a little bit and get their energy back. There are different chemicals that they make that you can put in there, especially for keeping those, put the slime back on the fish, it's called walleye saver. There's some that are different. I can't remember all the different ones, but there's there's quite a few of them, and you can use those. If you pull that fish out of deep water, you're, you you got to be real careful. A walleye, you got to bring them up real slow if you're bringing them out of deep water and you want to release them. Chances are that fish is not going to make it. I'm sure all of you have caught fish. When you pull them up, they have their bladder sticking out of their mouth or their eyes are real bulgy. A walleye, if you do that, he will not survive. Um, so just take your time. There's no reason to hurry when you bring a fish in. They're not going anywhere. If you just kick the steady tightness on your line and crank them in slow. Uh, I, I don't like to fish, unless I'm going after fish to eat, I don't like to fish over 30, 40 feet. Um, 
and there's other things you can do to take care of them, but we won't get into that because you got to know how to fizz them and bleed that bladder and all that stuff. But for just general public, just take your time bringing them in, put them in your live well for 10 or 15 minutes, let them relax, let them get their energy back, take your pictures, and then release them into the water. And make sure they're strong enough when they swim away. A lot of times, I wait till they can flip that tail and kind of splash me when I let them go. And if they do that, I know they're in good shape. Well, that's some great advice. I uh, I absolutely, if you listen to any of the other uh, episodes uh, on my podcast, I talk about CPR all the time. And I love the catch, photograph, and release, and especially with today's with today's technology from taxidermies. We don't need the actual fish or skin. Uh, they have such advanced ways of making great-looking replicas to put on your wall. So and they'll last longer than a skin fish. Right. Yeah, they last longer. And they look they look really good. So, um, uh, folks, if you if you catch a real, real nice one, you know, take lots of good pictures of it, get good measurements on it, and a taxidermist can uh, can fix you right up. So that's that's great advice. Now I did want to mention I do understand if you catch a possible state record or a world record, you're not going to release that fish, and that's understandable. You got to get it to a certified scale and get it weighed, and get it witnessed that it was weighed on a certified scale, and get a hold of fish in the game if you do that. Yep, absolutely. Go ahead. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you if you catch one that's um, you know in excess of I believe thirty four inches or so, I think is the state record. Uh, yeah, you wanna you wanna get to a certified scale and get that thing uh, uh, weighed. Exactly. The only other thing I wanted to talk just briefly about, Don, if we have time, we do is um, using your depth finder. What to look for on your finder. Um, you know, walleye, unless you're very familiar with using a depth finder, looking for walleye, it's going to be hard to tell if you're looking at a walleye on a depth finder. Some people call them fish finders, um, whatever you want to call them, because walleye tend to hug the bottom unless they're actively feeding in the water columns. Um, so what I look for, instead of looking for the fish, basically, is I look for the structure. Where's a walleye going to hang out? Walleye are opportunists when they come to getting their their food. So a lot of times, if you've got a stump field, um, brush, any kind of wood, um, look in those areas for walleye or, or fish those areas. Edges are very important, whether it's the edge of the river, the edge of a you know rock um, hump. Those areas are going to hold walleye generally, and it, it all boils down to where the feed is. That's what you want to look for. Now, if you see a bait cloud in the water or something you think is bait cloud in the water, it's possibly going to have walleye underneath it, and that's another good area. And the depth. Like right now, that water temperature is cooling off, so those fish are going to go a little deeper. I have caught walleye here on the Columbia River looking for eaters and, and testing out a max lure that was a prototype in 70 feet of water and caught walleye with it. 
So I would say right now, though, anywhere from 20 to, to 40 feet is your ideal water depth right now. Now, there are situations where you'll catch them in a lot shallower if they're in feeding or if at night they can be in shallower. But use that depth finder looking for structure and depth and edges of stump fields and, and rock piles and river edges instead of looking for the fish itself. Yeah, that's excellent um, advice because um, those fish are, like you said, they are opportunists. And if they're hanging around a, an edge or a, um, a rock pile, they're just waiting for that bait fish to come swimming up uh, close to them or um, moving out of the rocks and peeking out to see what's going on. And the next thing you know, they're lunch. Yep, yep. You know, crawdads, um, they love crawdads. Perch, baby perch, walleye, that's probably one of their favorite food is perch. So, you know, anytime you can find perch, if you're fishing and you catch um, perch while you're walleye fishing, you better be looking for walleye in that area because somewhere real close by there's going to be walleye. And, and that's a key to look for is, you know, if we catch a lot of incidental fish fishing for walleye in the Columbia River. I've caught sturgeon. Uh, I've caught shad. I've caught salmon. I've caught steelhead catfish. and catfish. And you're going to catch those fish and smallmouth bass. There's a ton of smallmouth bass. But if you start catching perch or sculpin, then count on having walleye close by because they're going to be there eating on those. Yeah, Any that's really questions? interesting. Well, you get the the incidental catches, uh, which are which are kind of neat. Um, my last question that I really had: you and I got to fish together back in September, and one of the things that you did is stun the worm. Now, there's, there's lots of different techniques you can use, but the the reasoning behind stunning the worm, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, now you're going to give my secret away, aren't you? Well, I hadn't planned on it, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, you know, the reason I stunned the worm, and I was taught that by the gentleman that got me into walleye fishing, is it allows me to put that worm on the hook whether it's a worm harness, not so much a slow death hook, but still even a slow death hook, it allows me to put that worm on, uh, I want to say straighter, I guess, easier to put on the hook because the worm is not wiggling around so bad. And if you recall when we did it, Don, I kind of showed you guys how to put that worm on the hook and, and get it so it's kind of straight when it's on the worm harness. Um, also, my wife thinks they they bite, so they stun them so they won't bite her. Okay, that's a couple of good reasons there. I uh, I like the straightness of the hook uh, myself because I like to get them on there so that they're the so that they'll stay on for one thing. Um, now, one of the other things I just thought of this question. Now, there are some of the folks that I fish with that will only buy um, night crawlers and specifically from Canada, uh, do you have a preference on, on which ones you use? Well, if you can get them, and, and be aware that 90, I'm going to say 90% or 98% of the night crawlers sold in the lower 48 are from Canada. 
no matter where you buy them at. Um, I like jumbos if I can get a hold of them, and they're good during the summertime. <coughs> Excuse me. This time of year, it's hard to find good night crawlers. Um, and then that's, uh, you know, Walmart usually carries Canadian crawlers, and that's usually this time of year about where you can get your better crawlers from is Walmart. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but, yeah, the majority of the night crawlers sold in this lower 48 come from Canada. Well, that, yeah, that uh, that's where I was leading to, but I thought... Uh, <laughs> We could uh, we could just talk around that, but that's fine. I don't mind having their name on there. Well, this has been this has been great information, and I'm thinking a lot of the listeners may have um, more questions about this. So if you do, make sure that you send me an email at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. Now, if it's a question that I can't answer, most likely it will be. By the way, I'll contact Ted for you. And, and see if I can get an answer. But, Ted, thank you for being on the show today. It has been great. Oh, thanks for having me, Don. I, I really appreciate it. And I just do want to throw out, um, if any of your listeners are interested, I do walleye seminars as well. Um, have them get in touch with you. You can get in touch with me, and we can discuss uh, putting together a seminar somewhere for people if they are interested in it. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. And I'd like to thank you for, for being on today, Ted. You bet. Let's go walleye fishing. And there he goes, Ted Beach. And again, thanks to Ted for coming on the show and uh, being my guest. Now, as we talked about during the interview, if you would like to ask a question of Ted or had some other uh, information that you'd like to get from him, please send me an email at gonefishing pdx at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to ask him and get back to you. For show ideas, feedback, email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to answer any questions that I get. I'd like to thank everybody. Until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX, and I'll see you on the backcast.